My name is A.T. Hargrave. I'm the new director of the Destiny Christian Leadership Institute. Pastor Lawrence is in England with a, doing a, with a uphold celebrating a wedding. He'll be back soon. And he, he asked me just a couple weeks ago if I would speak and give more information on DCLI and bring a sermon at the same time. And I said, I don't know if I can do that, but I'll do my best. Uh, but I just like to say right up front, I'm just so thankful for Pastor Lawrence and Tracy and uh, what they carry. Aren't you just delighted um, that they are leading us? And I pray that their tribe increases. Amen? Amen. I'm just so thankful. Well, this morning I want to, if you have your Bibles, if you'll grab them and take them out to Luke chapter 12, I want to take a look at Jesus' uh, philosophy, if you would, on life. Jesus' pathway to the good life. What Jesus thinks the good life is and how it ought to be lived. And uh, I'm going to be reading a, a, a lengthy portion of Scripture, which I usually do not do, but I wanted you to get the whole flow of his thoughts. And so uh, our text will be the entire New Testament. Uh, we'll get out sometime Thursday. So don't laugh, don't laugh at me. I'm a slow reader. No. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, why don't you take them and go to Luke chapter 12, and we'll begin at verse 1. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Be aware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever you whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that, uh, and after have nothing more they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are more value, of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that hour what you ought to say. Then someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up uh, for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So this is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. Verse 22. And he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life or what you will eat or about your body and what you will put on, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap and they neither build storehouses or barns and yet God feeds them. How much more value are you than the birds? And which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to your lifespan? If then you are not able to do the small thing, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory is not arrayed like one of these. 
But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all of nations of the world seek after such things. And your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things shall be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourself with the money bags that do not grow old with treasures in heaven and that does not fail. And where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's pray. Father, I ask in the next few moments that you would help me speak, communicate your word with precision. But Lord, at the end of the day, we, uh, we don't need another... Um, intrusion of the opinions of men. We, we need a word from you. Lord, I, I pause and I pray for our children right now. I pray that you would move among them and give them a heart to know you, that they would see your beauty and walk in your ways. And I pray for our volunteers. You bless them and anoint them. May their hands flourish. May their words speak life. And I pray in here, Lord, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Story of a farmer who is uh, in the depression. And when the depression hits, he's about to lose the family farm that's been in his family for generations. And so he goes looking for a job. Can't find much work. And there's finally a circus comes to town. So he goes to the circus to look for a job. And the man that owns the circus says, really, we don't have any work. And then the, the, the circus owner stops and says, well, there's actually something I'll pay you to do. You, you're not going to want to do it, but I'll pay you to do it. And the farmer, not wanting to lose the family farm, said, look, there's not a lot I, I won't do. What is it? He said, well, about a week ago, our gorilla died. And I've skinned him. And I need you to put on that gorilla suit, and I need you to act like a gorilla. It's the biggest show. I need you to do it. It's the reason why people come to the circus. Well, the farmer didn't want to do it, but of course, he didn't want to lose the family farm, and it paid good money. So he puts on the gorilla suit, begins to act like a gorilla, and finds it comes pretty natural to him. And in part of the circus, there was a spot where he was to swing over the lion's cage. And it was measured just right where the lion couldn't get to the uh, gorilla no matter how hard he tried. And he sat there and he swung over it until one day his hand slipped and he plunged into the lion's cage. Lion put his paws on his shoulders and roared in his face. And the man inside the gorilla suit said, don't eat me, don't eat me. To which the lion responded, shut up or you and me both are going to get fired. Now look, I know that's an old man joke. I know. I tell you that pathetic little joke. Oftentimes, if we're not careful, church can become like a circus where we all just wear different mat costumes, huh? Different suits. What I wanted to do this morning, and it's in, this is in your notes, one of your first points there. If we are to take Jesus to be a serious thinker, we must see the flow of his argument and not just reduce his teaching to sound bites. We want truth and not tweets. Notice there, you could tweet that. <laughs> That's irony, isn't it, at its finest? Uh, but you can, you can tweet that. We want truth, and sometimes truth is hard to get at, but look, truth is not relative. It can be contingent upon other things, but we want the truth, and we want the truth because it's the way, as we learn to cooperate with the truth, it's the way that we get consistent results and fruitfulness in our life. And what I wanted to do this morning is I want to walk through, I, I chose a lengthy set of pass, passage because I want you to see Jesus' argument and the way that he flows and the way that he thinks. Now Jesus starts here by addressing the Pharisees. Now look, the Pharisees tend to get a bad rap in my opinion. 
They were considered the zealous of the zealous. They were considered the faithful of the faithful. But honestly, uh, Pharisaicalism, being a Pharisee, it's really, it's really just, uh, it's really the human condition just exaggerated on religion. But at the heart of a Pharisee is really the human condition, to, to try to be better than most, to try to do what we think is necessary to get ahead. And Jesus begins to start with this, and he works through a particular argument. He starts with the root of, the, the, what's central to being a Pharisee, the root of Pharisaicalism is hypocrisy. And he says hypocrisy functions like leaven. It, it gets in there and it, just a little bit of it spreads and it causes growth. I, I honestly don't believe anyone intends on being a Pharisee or anyone intends on being a hypocrite. I don't think anyone sets out to do it for, for its own sake. Nobody wakes up one day and says, I can't wait to be a hypocrite. Right? You don't intend, it's kind of like eating at Denny's. You don't mean to. You just kind of wind up there at 2 o'clock in the morning trying to figure out what happened. Uh, nobody intends to, to become it. And so Jesus is saying at the root of being a Pharisee is hypocrisy. And then this is his first point, and you can, this is a point on your notes, the first premise here, that the root to hypocrisy is fear. He moves from bringing up the Pharisaical condition that's grounded in hypocrisy, and then in chapter, right in verse 4 begins to talk about fear, because the root of hypocrisy is fear. Now here Jesus talks about the fear of death. And I think it's very important that we read these, these uh, verses four through seven, very important uh, about asking the question, what does this tell us about Jesus' view of death? He says, don't worry about those who could kill your body and after that do nothing. Now, does anybody else read that and go, what? In other words, listen, fundamental to Jesus' idea of life, and you have to decide if Jesus knows what he's talking about. But Jesus would say, there's worse things that can happen to you than death. There's something worse than dying. In other words, life is not about finding what's worth living for. Life is about finding what in life's worth dying for. Because we're all dying. And it's something that we, we must be careful. If you, we don't like to think about death. And, and, and I'm honestly, I'm concerned about it. In our culture in the West, especially in America, we actually celebrate death in entertainment, movies and video games, but yet we remove it practically from our lives. There used to be a time when, when the elderly came home to die. Now, now we, we, we push it away from us. That when, when we refuse, to, when we live in denial about the fact that we're going to die, you can't build a good life on denial. And so Jesus starts out with this idea that there's something worse than death. And Jesus' perspective on the human person is that you are an eternal being living in God's world. That you're not just going to live 20, 30, 40, 80, 90 years. That you're an eternal being. So really the question is, who are you becoming? Who will you be 10,000 years from now? We are eternal beings living in God's world. And Jesus begins to focus us in right immediately on death. And he says in that passage to fear God. And I just need to hit this at a glance, at a stride. But look, the writer of uh, the book of Proverbs, Solomon in the book of Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I would just like to say it most certainly is the beginning of wisdom. It is not the end of wisdom. The end of wisdom is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you don't love him, you might as well start by fearing him. That's helpful. Look, it, uh, imagine that there was a power line down on the ground. It had hundreds and hundreds of volts of electricity running through it. It's not mean, but it is dangerous. God may not be mean, but he's dangerous. He's like God and all. 
And so even if, we, if you don't love him, at least start with a healthy reverence of him. Right, and that's where he starts there. And Jesus' antidote, though, to fear, right? If the root of hypocrisy is fear, Jesus' antidote in verse seven to fear is really surprising. Fear not, how much more valuable are you than birds? Another way of saying it is how many birds are you worth? Right, you may say, well, a couple sparrows and a beautifully colored cockatoo, but, uh, but that's what he's asking. In other words, one of the ways that we deal with our fear is that we begin to realize God's treasuring of us. Apart from our performance, God loves you based on his character, not based on anything that you've done. And so this is in your notes. Jesus teaches that the antidote to fear is settling the mind on the greatness and goodness of God and his valuing of you. And then he moves in verses 8 through 12 to speak of the fear of protecting ourselves and defending ourselves, the fear of our reputation. And there's a lot of verses in there we, people want to get bogged down on about blasphemy and, and the rest. What I'd like to just say today, because this is not a sermon on that passage, it's on the whole flow of thought. Jesus' antidote to the fear of my reputation or how am I going to defend myself? His answer is that this great and good God is with you in the person of the Holy Spirit. That this great and good God, the same great God that watches the sparrows and has the hair on your heads counted, it will be with you. This lively interaction with God. It's not just that God is good and great, it's that God is good, great, values me, and then promises to be with me. That I get to live life with God. This with God life is what ought to settle my fear about having to defend my reputation. Then he gets interrupted by someone in the crowd saying, hey teacher, tell tell my brother to share my inheritance with me. And look, Jesus answers, who made me a judge? I just want to say I'm thankful for this passage because it reminds us, look, it's okay not to have an opinion on every matter. <laughs> Jesus just goes, come on, man. You know, you want to say, Jesus, you are like judge of all the earth. You know, you could make a judgment on it. But he, he, who made me judge an arbiter of you? And Jesus begins, he's going to take this statement, he's going to work it back into his argument. And this is the second premise in your notes, premise number two, where he says in verse 15, life is more than what we possess. The root to hypocrisy is fear. We gave you the antidote to fear, the greatness and goodness of God, his value of us. He's interrupted, and so he begins to use this to come back into his argument. Life is more than what we possess, and he tells the parable about the farmer. Now look, the farmer's mistake was not in his abundance. The Bible is filled both in the Psalms and the New Testament. It's filled with this idea that God blesses his people. Having abundance was not his mistake. Nor do I believe his mistake was saving and anticipating the future. Saving for the future is not his mistake. Fundamentally, he had two mistakes, but number one and the big one, the mistake of the farmer, this is in your notes, the mistake of the farmer was thinking that the quantity of his possessions would improve the quality of his soul. His mistake was in thinking the quantity of his possessions would improve the quality of his soul. He believed at a fundamental level that securing his future possessions would bring rest to his soul. The story hinges not on him having abundance and not on him building just bigger barns, but when he turns to speak to his soul and say, now soul, you can be at rest. He thought because of his barns being full, his soul could be at rest. And then in verse 20, which is, a, uh, is where the whole parable turns on, in verse 20 where God intrudes, but God says to him, you fool. It is the, it is the intrusion of the transcendent. God steps in. And I don't know about you, but when God steps in, it can be scary sometimes. But look, God steps in, and God steps in and reminds us that the farmer's life was caught up in something eternal. 
and he was only focused on things that are temporal. The farmer's idolatry was in ascribing supernatural or eternal power to temporal things. Look, when a culture of humanism like we are in, it's hard to figure out what idols are because we're each our own God. Idolatry is when we take good things and we make them ultimate things. Abundance is a good thing. When it becomes ultimate, it's idolatry. Saving is a good thing. When it becomes ultimate, it's idolatry. Taking good things and making them ultimate things, ultimate things is the nature. He actually believed that barns and grain would have the power to he, uh, rest, bring rest to his soul. He also assumed that because he had the provision for that many years, he would live that long. And that's why, again, no one plans on dying in such denial is arrogance. Look, I just want to say to you, I, I know this sounds morbid to some degree, but look, cultures that f- do not celebrate death or think about death often forget to live. Uh, even Steve Jobs in his famous uh, um, speech at Standard just kept going on about death being the great gift. Interesting. But the rich man was not rich towards God because he thought he was in control of his life, including his own provision and protection. But then Jesus moves to encouraging us how to live then, if not like the rich man, and he begins to tell us to not worry about your life. Don't be anxious about your life. Now, I just want to pause and say, Either this guy knows what he's talking about or he's crazy. All the parents in the room, how would you like to have all of your children in a meeting in which the teacher stands up and says, I got great advice. What is it? Don't worry about your life. Yeah? Don't worry about what you're going to wear. You're like, I really need him to worry about what he's going to wear. He will wear nothing if we're not concerned about what he's going to wear. But Jesus says, don't worry about your life or the wherewithal. Who is this guy? And what, what kind of authority gives him the right to say those things? And Jesus knows a couple things. Number one, he knows that, that worrying is a form of meditation. People say, I can't, I can't meditate. I said, if you can worry, you can meditate. And Jesus says, don't uh, be anxious. Don't worry about these things. And listen, you cannot, have you ever tried to not think about something? Trying to not think about it is a great way to think about it, right? You ever had to talk with somebody with a booger in their nose and you think, I'm not going to look at the booger, I'm not going to look at the booger? What do you do? You look at the booger. Yeah, I mean, even you can read neuroscience, but neuroscience has proven that your brain can actually handle uh, ongoing negation. Don't, don't, don't. It has to have a positive action to supplement it, right? You can't just say, don't do, don't do. You have to say, I'm going to do, I'm going to do. Right? So when Jesus says, don't worry about your life, don't meditate, don't be anxious, don't, don't anticipate lack, don't let your mind muse on the things that you might lack in the future or the harm that may come to you. When he, when he asks that, if, if what we've seen so far is true, if Jesus is saying life is more than avoiding death and harm, life is more than avoiding and trying to protect your reputation, life is more than what you possess, life is more than your clothing, you're not supposed to meditate and think about the lack of these things, then what are we to think about, Jesus? Okay, great, what am I to think about? What am I to put my mind on? What am I to focus on? I think Jesus would say, I'm glad you asked. Consider the ravens. In other words, if I'm not going to worry, Jesus, what am I to do? Focus on God's good care of creation. Look, there's a direct correlation between your ability to trust God's good care for you in the future and whether or not you can see God sovereignly taking care of a raven. The 
the greatness and goodness of God to take care of a bird. And then he turns and says, look how God does this. Look at God's good care of the bird. How much more valuable are you than they? How many ravens are you worth? And then he says, look, consider the lilies and how they grow. They, they're, they're splendorous. They, they're even arrayed with more glory than Solomon. But notice what he said, consider the lilies and how they grow. How does a lily grow to be such, so glorious? Or maybe to put it in self-help terms of today, how does one actualize their inner beauty? How does one actualize their authentic self? And Jesus says, consider the lilies and how they grow. How do they grow to become glorious? They rest in what God made them to be. They neither toil nor spin. There is something inherently beautiful about a thing in which God made resting in how God made it. Look, this is one of the things we celebrated with Lexi's video the other day. There's something inherently beautiful about that settling into how God has made us and being all right with that, to receive how God has made us as a gift in that sense. Consider the ravens. Consider the lilies. Consider God's good care of these things. And then he says, um, as we concentrate on the greatness and goodness of God and the care of creation and how much more valuable we are to him, he mentions the word faith. Oh, you have little faith. And actually, in... Uh, in Greek, it's a, it's a term of endearment. It would probably be like a nickname, little faithies or something like that. Oh, you have little faithies. It's a, it's a, in Greek, it's a it, term of endearment. Let's just put it that way. But notice what he does. He brings up faith, not in the context of some doctrine or creed and whether or not you agree to it. He brings faith up and whether or not we can trust God for the sustenance of our everyday life. He brings faith up on whether or not you can rest in who he's made you to be. He brings faith up on whether or not you can trust God to provide and protect you. Now look, I just want to say, if we think we have the faith that's going to trust Jesus for the final evaluation of our soul for all eternity, but not trust him for a sandwich today, we might want to rethink faith. So then Jesus gets to the heart of the issue. Do not seek, then he says, in verse 29, do not seek what you eat or drink or be worried. Do not seek. In other words, do not organize your life, your thoughts, your intentions and actions around obtaining these things. Don't organize your life around trying to get these things. Don't, don't seek those things. The Gentiles, the nations, that would be a, those who don't know Yahweh, those who are not the people of God, they are worried and arranged around getting these things and they have the anxiety and the problems that come with it as well. But then he says, but, but not, but, or my version says in, instead, the OKJV used to say, but seek first the kingdom, but, which is a big but. It's a, it's a transition point in the whole argument. Don't seek, the, don't organize your life around getting these things. All right, Jesus, I, if I'm not to organize my life, then where does the good life come from? What am I supposed to organize my life around? Well, seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. Seek. Organize your thoughts, your intentions, and your actions around the kingdom of God. And all of these other things will be added to you. Okay, Jesus, they're all going to be added to me, but, but how do I know this? What authority do you have to tell me this? How can I be sure of it? And his answer would be to you, for your father knows what you need. 
Not only does your father know the hairs on your head as he started the argument with, the father knows the, the particularities of your situation. He knows the difficulties of your childhood. He knows the dysfunction of your adolescence. He knows the pain of your present situation. He knows your financial situation, your relational situation. He knows, and he knows what you need. Notice he says your father. He doesn't call him Jehovah Jireh, the provider. He doesn't call him Elohim. He could have called him all of those. Your father, your Abba, your, your, uh, your father. This deeply intimate phrase, your father knows you. He knows your particular life, and he knows what it is you need. Let that bring rest to you so that you can seek first the kingdom of God. This brings us to premise number three. Jesus believes the good life, the life that we are to live, is found in treasuring God and in the adventure of co-laboring with him. This would be Jesus' path to a good life, to treasuring God and the adventure of co-laboring with him. So we need to talk about a couple things here as we conclude. What does it mean to seek the kingdom of God? What is a kingdom? Well, a kingdom would be a, a king's domain. Let me put it this way. A kingdom is the realm of your effective will. That is where what you want done is done. Um, we, God has a kingdom, and God, because he's given us dominion, we all have these small kingdoms. Um, ladies, you, you have a kingdom. Well, you may have a queendom, if you like that better, right? Um, but take, take your purse, Jan. If I was to come down and start going through it, it, it violates something, doesn't it? That falls inside of your domain. We all have these little dominions that God has given us, and our bodies is one of the first places we have that. And what does it mean to seek first the kingdom of God? Well, this is in your notes. Seeking first the kingdom of God means giving your attention and effort and bringing all areas of your life and influence into alignment with God's will. It means giving your attention and effort and bringing all areas of your life into God's will. And I just need to add this. Not only bringing it into alignment with God's will, but also in God's way. We're not grabbing swords and going on a crusade here. We're having to learn how to bring things that God has given us stewardship over, things we're going to be held accountable for. How do we bring it into alignment with God's will? I want to add in passing, it's a sermon for another time, but it's seek first, not only. The issue is priority, not exclusivity. When you seek first the kingdom of God and you make that the center thing that's organized your life, there's freedom to seek other things, but there's just all... Um, underneath my priority of seeking first the kingdom of God. You can seek first a successful business. You can seek first um, uh, blessing your children, great education. You can seek first, I mean, seek first, sorry. You can seek these other things, just not first. That's what I meant. I'd undo the whole sermon in one sentence. <laughs> sorry. What Jesus is trying to get at is this. You can't seek first, though, the kingdom of God and your provision and protection at the same time. And you must choose. Our needs are to be trusted to God. Outcomes are to be trusted to God. So let me give you Jesus' logical outwork. And here's Jesus' logic. At the center of the good life is authenticity, not being a hypocrite, which means we must deal with fear. So this would be his working. If God is so generous in providing for birds and flowers, which are of lesser value than you, if it is reality that we're all going to die, if you can't really solve these problems in your life by worrying, then why not try it God's way? Why not test and see if Jesus knows what he's talking about? 
I've told you uh, about DCLI and that one of my goals is to give Jesus a fresh hearing. That is to present his teaching again as if he knew what he was talking about, as if he's smart, and that he knows what the truth is. And so here he's telling us we can arrange our life. All the nations of the world arrange their lives around these things, but the people of God are to have an alternative way of life. And that alternative way of life is to be organized around seeking first the kingdom of God. He ends with this statement, it's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That at least means two things as we conclude. One, it means that God will not hide his will from you. If his desire is for you to seek first his kingdom, you can't bring you into alignment to his will if you have no clue what his will is, that God will be gracious and kind. He will communicate to you what his will is. Now, he may do it in his own time and in his own way, but he will. He's not going to hide from you. He's not saying, hey, be sure to bring into alignment with my will, other than nana boo boo, you can't find my will. And that's why, to me, oftentimes, when, listen, when sincere Christians are seeking God, oftentimes the will of God is much more clear than we make it, in my personal opinion. Even when we talk about revelation, really what we're talking about is the way in which knowledge came to us, but we're not talking about not knowing what to do or not knowing the truth. The next second thing it means, and this is more of a huger theological issue, but the next thing it means to give you the kingdom. Revelations 5.10 says that those who've been ransomed by the blood of the Lamb will reign with him in the earth. That in the age to come, God is going to let those who've overcome by the blood of the Lamb reign with him forever. Dallas Willard said, that makes all of this life, Christians, all of this life is about training for reigning. Learning how to steward what's been given me, bringing it in alignment with God's kingdom. And Jesus says, this is the way to the good life. So look, Jesus is not against you finding rest for your soul. He's not against you even seeking out securing your provision and protection. He's just saying that if you try to secure your provision and protection in this life, on this earth, it'll always be at risk. That the way to a soul that's at rest and the way to have confidence in your future and what God will, that God will, or the security of your future is to actually put your trust in God. To commit my, my needs and what I need to God, my future to God, to trust to his good care and he will be kind to me. So, at the core of Jesus' good idea, or at the core of Jesus' idea of the good life is treasuring God. But the, what it looks like and what we see in this teaching is one of the central things about treasuring God is to realize God's treasuring of us. Notice the re repetition, that the point most repeated is how much more valuable are you to him than birds? So I pray that we would discover as we follow Jesus and trust his good care of us and seek first his kingdom, we are discovering with Jesus that this world is a perfectly safe place for us to be because Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead. And when we live in this way, guess what? We bear witness to another way of life. You see, part of the, our role as the people of God is to live in such a way where our lives make no sense if God is not God. Okay, I just need to hit this one time. This is extra, but you know, whatever. Israel told the truth about its patriarchs. And if you remember, their patriarchs were jacked up. Yeah. Judah slept with his own daughter. Abraham farmed out his wife. I mean, you're talking about guys with some big problems. And Israel records it and tells the truth about it for ages. Why? 
Because the point was never how good Israel was. The point was Israel's not Israel if God is not God. And that is the way we are to live, that our lives are unintelligible. If Jesus is not Lord and God has not raised him from the dead, if he's not risen and if he's not Lord, our lives make no sense to the world. So let the nations of the world seek after such things, but not us. Let us be a people who trust and they look at us and go, what are you doing? How can you live this way? If we say, well, Jesus is like Lord and all. This is the way you live when you have a good creator God who knows what you need and has promised to take care of you, even in death. Would you stand with me? Lord, we're thankful for your presence and we're thankful for your word. And we pray now that you would, um, it's all pointless, Jesus, unless you come. So Holy Spirit, would you move? Would you convict hearts? Would you help us realize we're, we're out of alignment with you and your kingdom? Stir our faith to trust you for the simple, everyday kind of things. And may we be a people whose lives bear witness that you are Lord by the way that we live. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.